Campfire presents Lights Out. Good evening, campers, and welcome to Lights Out. This is an auditory experience designed to test your limits, the boundaries of disquiet and tension. Be prepared to endure a sensation that may chill you to your core. Please, take the time to prepare yourself. Dim the lights. Relax. Perhaps with your favorite blanket. Relax. Clear your mind. Free yourself of any external factors that may prevent you from getting the full experience. Close your eyes. Relax. Focus on your breathing. Welcome to Lights Out. Changing Paths and Borrowed Time Just about time. I was startled by the voice. I'd been staring out the window for a while. I must have missed him sitting across from me when we were at the last stop. He gave me a thin smile. Pardon? nearly your time, my friend. I shook my head at him. I'm afraid I don't follow. He pulled an hourglass from his jacket and held it up, showing me that nearly all the sand had fallen to the bottom. My palms began to sweat. Something about that hourglass felt so final, inarguable, I knew in my bones who I was facing. I... I'm I'm not ready. All I've done is work my life away. I never traveled. Never married. Never really learned who I am. Suppose I were to... To change where I get off? I swallowed. Would that make a difference? You're not meant to live past your time, Death said, folding his arms. Changing your path will only create an imbalance. I felt the train begin to slow for the next stop. I glanced at Death, and he raised an eyebrow. As soon as the doors opened, I bolted outside. Looking back at Death through the window, he tipped his hat, and I kept on running. At first, I was always looking over my shoulder. I expected him to return at any moment. But he didn't. I began wondering if the whole thing had been a dream, or just a stranger playing a trick on me. Nonetheless, it changed the way I looked at everything. I quit my joyless job. I moved out of my cramped apartment. I stopped resigning myself to black-and-white world of cookie-cutter interactions and two-dimensional smiles. It had taken being faced with death for me to truly start to live, and I wasn't going to waste a second. It was many years later when I saw him again. I'd gotten up for water, and there he was, sitting at the table. Come sit, he beckoned gesturing to the seat across from him. 
Filled with dread, I complied. We sat in silence for a while. You've certainly used your time to the fullest. I'm rather impressed, he finally said. I kept my eyes on the table. I suppose you know why I'm here. I I do, I croaked. Could I say goodbye first? Death grimaced. Please, I love Melanie more than anything in this world. Just let me say goodbye before I leave it. Death folded his hands and sighed. Oh no, I'm not here for you. My heart fell into my stomach. No, not Melanie, take me. I'm the one you want, don't take my wife, I begged. Death rose to his feet, towering over me. I warned you about the imbalance you'd make. If you'd gone with me then, I wouldn't have to take them now. Them? I gasped. You... You didn't know? He said ruefully. I'm sorry. But once you've cheated death, you simply cannot create more life. Step 9 Oh dear, my darling dove. I opened my eyes to darkness. The voice brought me back, but to where? Everything was black, and it felt as if I was floating in warm liquid. I raised my hands to my face, and find that I cannot see them. I was nothing but consciousness, floating in a sea of black oblivion. Faintly, off in the distance, I can hear the Jeopardy theme song playing. It sends visible ripples through the air, and I can feel the vibrations. The hypnotic music dances through my core, banging away at my mind. I go to close my eyes, but find that I can't tell the difference. Either way, I was lost in a sea of shadows, the Jeopardy music swirling around my head. I feel my mind suddenly being launched forward, the music growing louder and my body coming more into focus. With a start, I wake up in a hospital bed, deep gasps racking my body. The blaring whiteness of the room sends a painful spark through my eyes and my brain causing me to groan. To be sent from pitch black to pure white is too much for my body to handle. I gasp deeply willing the throbbing pain in my head to cease. Once it's calm, I open my eyes once more. Across the room, high up near the ceiling, is an old box television, playing a long-forgotten episode of Jeopardy. A dresser sits below it, with a vase full of white orchids perched perfectly on top. With rapid clarity, the events of the past day begin to race through my mind. Flashes of the funeral in the closed casket, faces of mourners and people I barely knew, the letter, the keys, the monster. I stifle a gag, my hand flying up to cover my mouth. The face of the sea creature haunts my vision, and cold sweat soaks my skin. Had it all been a horribly vivid nightmare? My eyes slowly fall onto the outline of my leg underneath the hospital blanket. 
If it had been real, then... One hand yank, and the blanket flies off the bed, landing in a heap on the floor. I stare in wide-eyed terror at my leg. It's wrapped tightly in white bandages, and I can see faint spots of red leading in a circular arch across my ankle. I reach out, gently touching one of the spots and envisioning the sharp, long teeth that had made it. It is real. It is all real. I quickly search the room. I quickly search the room, finding myself alone in the vast white space. The hospital bed to my right was empty, made perfectly neat, awaiting its next patient. Next to that bed was a large window overlooking a vast field of green. Underneath, an alcove where visiting family and friends could sit. Sitting on it are my funeral clothes. And there, glowing against the black fabric, was the red key. I launch myself out of bed and feel the IV painfully rip out of my arm. I cry out, clamping my hand down on the wound as blood begins to seep out. Giving the room another quick search, I spot a metal tray containing multiple drawers. Stumbling over to it, I yank open every drawer until I find some gauze. Sloppily, I bandage my own arm, tucking the bandage underneath itself to keep it on. I yank off my hospital gown and pull on my black funeral clothes. They smelled fresh and clean, and I mutter a soft thank you to whichever kind nurse washed it for me. I slip on one shoe and tuck the other under my arm. The quick movement had caused a dull throb to start in my ankle, and now it's rippling up my leg. I wince as I try to put some weight on it and realize I'd get nowhere in this condition. My eyes scan the room, and hope swells in my chest as they land on a pair of crutches beside the door. With little grace, I limp across the room, bashing my left hip on the corner of the hospital bed. I wince but keep going, snatching the crutches and leaning on them. The dull throb in my ankle is now a screaming pain, biting my lip. I clumsily pull open the hospital door and peer out. Visitors and nurses are scattered in the hall, but none look my way. I shuffle out of the room, gently letting the doors close behind me. Taking in a deep breath, I start walking down the hall. Going too fast would rouse suspicion, but going too slow might make one of the nurses offer to help. I stumble a bit, the crutches just a few inches too high to rest comfortably under my arms. A nurse talking with a concerned mother glances my way, and I give her a wide smile. She smiles back, then returns to her conversation. I make it to the elevator and ride it down alongside a male nurse pushing a little boy in a wheelchair. The boy looks up at me, a toy stuffed dinosaur clutched in his fists. I feel a tug in my heart, and I give him a soft smile. He smiles back, but it keeps growing. The skin of his cheeks tear as he smiles wider and wider his eyes growing small and black. The skin rips, exposing muscle and blood. His teeth seem to go on far past his jaw and up the side of his skull. I stare in horror, taking a few stuttering steps away from the monstrosity. Oh dear, oh dear, my darling dove, 
Are you searching for your love? The voice I had heard in my dream creeps out of the child's teeth. Its eyes are now perfectly round and bead-like, and I feel as if I've seen it before. My breath catches in my throat, and I stifle a scream as the elevator door dings. I bolt out, not bothering to use my crutches as I take step after painful step. Sinister laughter echoes behind me, and I dash for the hospital entrance. No longer worried about not being suspicious. The sun sits low on the horizon, casting a warm glow over the parking lot. I see it almost immediately, parked underneath the shade of a large tree, my car. I wonder if it was towed by whoever found me, or if something else brought it here. The door is unlocked, and I squeeze myself into the driver's seat, slamming the door shut. Now alone in the safety of my car, I scream. My voice bounces off the glass, and I scream. Tears stream down my face, and I hit the steering wheel with both hands. My voice grows hoarse and raw. Panting, I let the tears fall from my face and onto my lap. Having let out all the emotion bottled up inside, I put the key in the ignition and start the car. Step 9. My Step 9. Pulling out of the parking lot, I head east, toward the setting sun. I didn't have to go far, knowing exactly where I needed to be. Nightfall was soon, and then my trial would begin. Step 9. The Graveyard Game. I pull into the cemetery as the sky is starting to change from orange to purple, black slowly creeping in. It wasn't a large one, maybe a couple acres, but I knew that this was the one I had to be in. He was buried here. I drive slowly, my eyes searching along the gray, cold stone. I can almost see the events of the day, the warm sun, the cold breeze, family members entrapping me on all sides, the large hole, the wooden casket, the pile of white orchids I had laid on top. I'm not sure, but I have a feeling that I had gotten nine of them. I pull to the side along the northern edge of the cemetery and get out. Using my crutches, I slowly make my way down the rows and rows of stone. I imagine the dead sleeping below me, all in various states of decay. I imagine him rotting away. The visions are blown away when a familiar stone comes into view. It's shinier and smoother than the others, newer. I can see piles and piles of flowers laid before it, and the fresh spot of grass beginning to grow. I feel hot tears fill my eyes, and I collapse before the stone. Tracing my fingers along the etching, I whisper his name. Over and over again I read it, my fingers memorizing the textures of the stone. My eyes raise up and I see it. A small pristine white orchid resting on top of the grave. One of the orchids I had left six feet under. With trembling hands I reach out and pick it up. A harsh breeze blows past, threatening to carry the flower from my grasp. I clench it tighter, clumsily getting to my feet. Step nine had begun, and I had nine hours to find the remaining eight orchids and bring them back to his grave. Filled with a rush of determination, 
I hook my arms over the crutches and begin limping through the cemetery, the white orchid clenched in my hand. My eyes pan the surroundings, searching for spots of white. I can see one, a few rows south of his grave, resting neatly on a round older stone. I bump into graves, my crutches grinding against the stone. I apologize in my head, but I won't slow down. I have plenty of time to search the cemetery, but I want to get this one done as fast as possible. I want to be another step closer to seeing him. I snatch up the orchid without bothering to read the grave, continuing on my quest for the remaining seven. The wind blows harsher and the light dims. The sky is now almost solely black, hints of purple and red off in the far horizon. Shuddering at the chill, I press onward, spotting another white orchid a few columns to the right. As I approach it, one of my crutches snags on something and I stumble. I catch myself on the square gravestone containing the orchid. Looking back, my breath catches in my chest. The end of the crutch is caught in something gray and slim, wrapping around it tightly. In the low light, I can make out the faint white of five fingernails. The ground below me starts to roll and sag as the hand pushes further up. Faint groaning vibrates through the dirt beneath my feet. I snatch up the orchid, leaving the one crutch behind as I limp my way further west, barely spotting another white speck cradled in the hand of an angel statue. Groans start to come from everywhere underground, and I can see mounds of earth beginning to upheave. I'm moving as fast as I can, losing the other crutch to another outstretched, decaying hand. Pain shoots like fire up my leg, but adrenaline pushes me forward. I reach out toward the statue, my outstretched fingers brushing against the flower when the stone begins to quake. The angel's fingers slowly begin to curl around my wrist, and I scream as I quickly try to grab the orchid and pry my hand away. The rough stone scrapes my skin pulling away rough patches from my hand and causing blood to start to flow. I stumble back away from the moving statue, adding the bloody orchid to the rest. I've gotten four, and I had five more to go. A few rows down and to the east is another one, sitting delicately on a square grave. I begin to run. The pain in my leg a phantom memory as I rush past graystone after graystone. Sprouting out from the ground all around me are parts of the dead. Hands, feet, heads. Dead eyes stare at me as I hurl past them, with rusty voices calling after me. I reach out and wrap my fingers around the fifth orchid. A rotten hand comes from the other side of the stone and wraps around mine. Panicked breath hitches in my chest as I'm brought face to face with the rotting carcass of the long-dead woman. Her nose is gone, and both of her eye sockets are black and full of pus. It slowly drips down her cheeks as we stare at each other. I pull my hand away sharply, causing the withered corpse hand to break at the wrist. Still the bone clings to me, tightening its painful grip around my wrist. I don't bother to try to remove it. Wasting any time now could mean certain death. Instead, I run, my eyes searching the seemingly endless rows of gray stone for another orchid. Further south, I spot number six, and I can see three lumbering shapes surrounding it. 
I swallow the lump in my throat and sprint directly for the grave. The air burns in my lungs and my ankle is a swollen lump of numbness, but I won't stop. I sprint between the three figures, their decaying hands scratching my skin as I run past them. For a moment, one snags on the side of my shirt, and I threaten to lose my balance. As I fall, the hand gripping my wrist loses its grip and falls to my feet. It scuttles and snips at my ankles, attempting to grab hold of anything it can reach. I land painfully on the grave, snatching up the orchid as pain erupts through my midsection. Gasping for air, I stumble away, trying to regain my breath and stay out of reach of the dead hand stretching toward me. I kick at the dismembered hand, sending it flying through the cold air to shatter against a smooth stone. The fragments of bone sprinkle through the air and clatter against the rock. The wind howls and the dead groan, but all I can hear is the pounding sound of my heartbeat. I make it to the seventh orchid, resting on top of a small gravestone. The decaying remains of a child is trying to pull itself from the ground, its jaw snapping hungrily at me as I pass. Everywhere I look, I see more and more of them. They've been dead for so long, they must be so hungry. I shake my head to get rid of the thought, focusing my attention on the white flower glowing in the dim light. It's just a couple rows away, and there's a clear opening to get it. Pain shoots through my leg as something clenches my injured ankle. Screaming, I fall to the damp earth. I don't bother to look back, knowing that my leg rests in the hands of a withering monstrosity. I dig my fingers into the earth, pulling myself along the ground as I try to pry myself from its grasp. The moans are getting louder, and I can see dark shapes lumbering closer and closer. With a cry of desperation, I kick my left ankle with my other foot, knocking loose the grasp on my leg and sending a maddening jolt of agony through my body. I stumble to my feet, feeling outstretched fingers brush against my back as I run. I reach the eighth orchid and eagerly add it to the others. One more. I only need one more. I look around desperately, now completely lost in the darkness of night and gloom of the cemetery. Rays of moonlight highlight jerking forms as they inch closer, their hungry cries deafening. A spark of hope leaps through my chest as I spot a speck of white resting at the steps of a mausoleum. It was the only one in the cemetery, sitting menacingly amongst the small graves. I lunge in its direction, forcing my eyes to stay on the white spot and ignore the countless bodies getting closer and closer. I bob and weave past headstones and corpses, my clothes getting ripped and torn by outstretched claws. The air in my lungs is on fire, and my leg is a mass of numbness. I stumble over my own feet, clumsily dodging left and right in my race for the flower. The mausoleum looms high above, its stone walls seeming to go endlessly up into the night sky. The orchid sits delicately on the top step, undisturbed and pristine, surrounded by rotting filth. Beyond the metal gate that seals the mausoleum, hand after hand is reaching out. They claw at the air and moan in desperation, tearing the rotting flesh from one another in their eagerness to escape. I reach out and pick up the final orchid, letting out a squeal of triumph 
Then the sound of tearing metal pierces the air. I look up in horror as the metal gate heaves, then finally falls away from the stone. Body after body stumbles after it, a mass of tangled limbs and moldy clothes writhing on the stone steps. Their hands snatch at my clothes, a few gripping tightly around the fabric. Screams erupt from my chest as I try to pull away. The longer they hold me, the more hands grasp my clothes. Panic binds every thought, and I see my terrified face reflected in their gray, milky eyes. I feel something tear, and suddenly I'm free. Bitter cold shocks my bare chest as I stumble away from the horde. My black shirt disappears into the mass. I waste no time and begin to run. The moans now turn into screams of anger and frustration. They're moving faster, their hands not being able to grab a hold of me. Their nails dig into my flesh, creating long, deep gashes in my skin. Still, I run. I can see it, his grave. The moonlight seems to bounce off of it, creating a heavenly beacon. Tears start to fall from my eyes, and I can't help but laugh at the relief. It's over. I finished. I'm another step closer to seeing him again. I just have to reach the stone. A tall figure steps into my path. It stands right on his grave, swaying softly. It's not as rotten as the rest. It's funeral clothes only covered in dirt from its escape. The wavy, dark brown hair blows in the breeze, and the moonlight reflects off its glasses. My tears of joy turn to pain as I recognize him. His arms raise slowly as I run toward him, a deep low moan leaving his lips. It feels as if a dagger has been jammed into my chest. It's him, but a rotting, mocking version of him, brought back to weaken my will and test my strength. I see where the mortician had sewn him back together. A large scar runs across his face, holding the skin together. Bits of his fingers are sewn on, dangling by black threads. I force myself to close my eyes, trying to remember his face before his death, but still all I can see is that scar. I feel his arms wrap around me, but all I feel is the cold embrace of death. Time seems to have stopped forcing us to stay in this tango between life and death for eternity. Still, I refuse to open my eyes. I can sense the earth coming to greet us, and the tips of his fingers brushing along my back. Though he is dead like the others, his embrace feels gentle, welcoming. My nose collides with the soft dirt, and I feel it plug my nostrils. I cough and hack, raising myself up on my elbows as I shake the earth from my face. Opening my eyes, I can see the nine white orchids resting at the base of his grave. They seem to shimmer, before slowly being pulled back into the ground by a hand covered in stitches, left behind as a small yellow key. Reaching out with a shaky hand, I pick it up and read, Step 9 Complete along the metal surface. A chuckle escapes me, and I collapse back onto the earth. The cold breeze cools my sweaty skin, 
and the adrenaline slowly begins to fade. My left leg is completely numb, and I know without looking that the wounds have reopened. I feel blood dripping from scratches and scrapes across my body, but I feel no pain. The numbness has returned, and all I can think about is how badly I wish to be under the earth with him, buried alongside him in an eternal embrace. A small spark seems to flicker in my chest, and my grip tightens around the yellow key. I will bring him back. Turnip Boy At some point in their lives, everyone meets a Turnip Boy. Universal law or something. Irrefutable fact meets immovable truth. I met mine when I was 11 years old. He'd crawled under my bed, all trembling and naked and scared. What are you, I asked. Turnip, he replied philosophically. Do you have a name? You can call me the Exiled King, for I was chosen by my people to seek divine retribution. How about Carl? I could be a Carl, he uttered thoughtfully. Thin, turnipy index finger stroking a bumpy turnipy chin. Turnip boy, or Carl, as it were, was as ugly on the outside as he was also ugly on the inside. He had all these scars and the bumpy texture of his skin, and would periodically bleed rot, the stains of which would settle and fester and decompose for months. I didn't mind the rot bleeds, though and I kept Carl hidden under my bed for months, not quite understanding the severity of his existence. Not until my father found out. On that fateful morning, my father shook me awake violently. Eloise, he snarled. What have you brought upon this house? He held Carl by his turnipy feet, the poor exiled king dangling and squirming all worm-like. You mean Carl? I asked in a manner of perplexity. Come with me, girl, he screamed, dragging me after him out to the great field. The field stretched to the horizon and possibly further, and I've never really liked it. Father forced me a little ways out before slamming me to the ground with brutal force. Pull it up, he screamed pointing at one of the countless turnip tops sticking out of the soil. Carl was still dangling in his grip, and I could tell by the look in his turnipy eye that he wasn't enjoying himself. I swallowed deeply, grabbing the top with both hands. With the forcible yank, I pulled it up, before instantly dropping it in shock. Abomination, my father yelled turnip I'd pulled up wasn't just a turnip anymore. It was a turnip baby. A little wrinkly sack of writhing rot and festering flesh. It wailed incessantly like a pig being ground up alive, and I watched in horror as my father stomped the life and innards out of it. What, what have you done, Carl? I sobbed. Carl laughed, a loud cackle that echoed the great field. 
I impregnated your food supply, he snickered. I sought divine retribution. Soon they shall all rise and make sludgy corpse juice out of you all. That was the last thing my friend Carl ever said. My father bit off his head and spat it into the field moments after. So, you see, meeting a turnip boy can be a life-changing experience. We survived just fine, though. The exiled king, Carl as it were, didn't fully grasp how far humanity will go to avoid finality. True. We no longer had turnips to sustain ourselves. We had something far better. Fresh, succulent, rot-dripping turnip babies. <laughs>